Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interest, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio this week. For our program um, this week in the age of COVID-19, we're going to be playing a recording of a public forum that was organised by Green Left and Social Alliance, um, featuring a range of speakers, um, including Elizabeth Latham, Dick Nichols and Mary Merkindich from Social Alliance. The theme of the forum is COVID-19, Capitalism Puts Profits Over Health. Um, and hope you enjoy. Meeting, our first online meeting uh, from uh, Melbourne Socialist Alliance. Uh, the title of the meeting is COVID-19, Capitalism Puts Profits Before Health. And we're really grateful to have the range of speakers we've got uh, tonight. Um, and... There will be time for questions and discussions afterwards for people who are on the Zoom connection, um, uh, but we will also be doing a Facebook live stream for this as well. Um, first of all, I would like to acknowledge that as we're hosting the meeting for Melbourne, we're on living on we're on stolen land, the land of the Rundry of the Kulin Nation. Uh, land which was stolen and never ceded and we recognise that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, for people who are wondering um, who I am, uh, my name is Sue Bolton and I'm a member of Socialist Alliance and I'm also a Moreland local councillor. Um, so the way we run the meeting tonight, we've got three speakers um, although we may possibly have a last-minute addition from Italy. Um, we're not sure about that yet. But we've got three fantastic speakers. Um, our first speaker will be Lisbeth Latham, who is a union activist, an education union activist, who's also a contributing editor of the Irish Broad Left and has also been contributing articles to Green Left Weekly on the COVID-19 crisis and uh, particularly workers' rights. Um, we've got Miriam workers, teacher, teachers and um, support staff work, workers' um, rights over many years, but especially right now um, for the rights of um, education workers um, during this crisis. And we've got Dick Nichols, who is a Green Left Weekly European correspondent based in Barcelona, Spain, uh, right in the heart of one of the world epicentres. Um, and uh, the fact that we've got a speaker from Spain as well as speakers from uh, local speakers will be an opportunity to contrast the responses uh, to the COVID-19 crisis, both from our respective ruling classes, uh, but also, um, also from um, 
the point of view of uh, workers' protests and left protests to try and win our rights during this time. Um, so I'd just like to welcome everybody. And we're going to, the order we'll go in is we'll have Elizabeth Latham speaking first, followed by Mary Merkinich, followed by Dick Nichols. Now, the way we'll um, handle the meeting is that we will <coughs> have here from the three speakers first, who'll each speak for about 15 minutes um, each. Um, then uh, that will be the end of the Facebook live stream. But people who are on the Zoom connection will be able to um, ask questions, but also um, have, uh, engage in some discussion, online discussion. Um, now, if I'll explain that process of how we'll handle that discussion online uh, once the speakers are finished. Uh, but first, I'd like to start by um, introducing our first speaker, Lisbeth Latham. And just to let people know that the host um, of the meeting will sort of mute people uh, um, so people won't be able to speak until you're after the speakers have spoken and you ask, um, you know, able to ask questions and so forth or, or make comments. So now um, we'd like to just start the public meeting itself with our guest speakers. Um, firstly, Lisbeth Latham, uh, education activist who's a regular writer, both in his personal blog, um, as well as Green Left Weekly and the Irish Broad Left publication. Um, thanks. Over to you, Lisbeth. Well, thanks, Sue. Um, yeah, so if people want to refer to me, you can use my preferred pronoun, which is uh, she or her. Um, uh, it's good to be here, comrades. It's a really... So I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which I'm speaking from, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, paying respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that this land was stolen and sovereignty was never ceded. So uh, this talk is really going to be an expansion on and build, build on the articles that I've been writing for Green Left and for my blog over the last couple of weeks, um, and really trying to talk about the intertwining crises that, we, uh, that we're, we're, we're um, meeting, which is both the health crisis that's caused by being caused by the pandemic and then the associated um, economic uh, uh, crisis, um, which has been feared uh, by, the, um, by the pandemic, but is really just exacerbating uh, the crisis tendencies of capitalism uh, that uh, are, have been at play for some time. Um, and like people have been waiting for the next, uh, next financial crisis to hit and uh, it's just the, uh, yeah, perfect storm in some ways. Um, and we can maybe talk about that in discussions. Um, and I think we need to start by saying that this pandemic would have been difficult to contain um, by for any economic system, but because uh, uh, the health crisis of this, and, and, the, and this type of health crisis would have triggered some level of economic disruption, but that things have been made much worse by both the capital systems drive to uh, constantly expand profits at the expense of the well-being of, of humans and the planet and by the policy dictates of neoliberalism which have sought to drive down social spending on public health and at the same time increase the extent to which uh, that uh, health care is commodified um, and that's highlighted by the US uh, which has got the highest per capita spending on health care but also quite frankly has a terrible terrible health care system um, which fails to meet the basic needs of the vast bulk of society of that society and we're getting sick can be a financial disaster from which people can never escape. 
Um, however, the US is not alone. As Emma Clancy points out in her excellent recent article on the European uh, Commission health policy, which, uh, which is available on her uh, blog, Emma Clancy, uh, the, EC, the European Commission has been attempting to drive down the level and quality of public health care in the European Union uh, for the past uh, few decades, which has been a significant contributor to the ability of the individual healthcare systems of the European Union nations to respond to the crisis, uh, most notably in Italy and the Spanish state, uh, which we'll go hear about later on from Dick and possibly someone from Italy. Um, I want to talk about my thinking in this period on how we respond to the, um, in the interests of working people and how we, we use this opportunity to not just make people's lives better uh, in, uh, within the context of the crisis, but how do we move forward uh, to challenge a system um, uh, that is in crisis and build a better world? Uh, so some of the things I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to talk about health policy. I'm not a medical expert and beyond some general ideas around the need to limit the spread of the infection to save lives and improve the capacity of our health system to save lives. I don't know enough about epidemiology or virology to comment on that stuff. And I'm also not going to talk about the legal measures that uh, the state's taking. Um, like I think that we're in a very difficult situation and um, uh, I don't know enough about the law other than to say that the, the state will take some chance, uh, op, take the opportunity to try and expand their power in ways in which we are unha unhelpful, but at the same time, and we need to oppose, but at the same time, there will probably be some steps that are necessary at the same time. So I think that um, we can't prejudge any proposal, and we, um, and we need to base everything on their on their um, on their merits, and we need to follow. Um, uh, to paraphrase Trotsky, the, the, that we can't just say that because the capitalists are doing something, it must be bad. We have to look at what they're doing and why they're doing it and then make a judgment about what we think is the appropriate course of action in the, in, in the, in, in the given moment. So what do I want to talk about? What I want to do, what I want to do is draw on my experience around industrial, uh, around industrial questions and around economic responses, uh, largely informed by my experience as a unionist and as an industrial and economic sociologist. Um, if you've been reading my articles in Green Left and on my blog, um, you'll have seen an evolution in the issues that I've been raising and how the demands I've suggested had modified as the crisis has unfolded. And I'm not seeking to develop a unified systematic response, uh, but to, taking, uh, this will sound arrogant, it's not, most, it's not supposed to be arrogant, um, but drawing on Grant, what Gramsci said about um, his writing um, during the red, red years in Italy in 1919 and 1920, just dealing with the immediate challenges of the day. Um, so what do I see these as being? Well, in the beginning, I think that um, the challenge we were needing to address was around people needing to self-isolate if, um, if they were potentially ill, if they were infected. Um, the problem that, that emerged from that is that while people should be should have been self-isolating, that the our system is not was not and is not set up to support the majority of people from being able to actually do that. Um, in Australia, there's 3.3 million people who are ca employed casually. They have no leave, and so uh, oh, what is going on there? Um, and and so them self-isolating would mean them just not being paid for weeks at a time, and that's uh, something that is unfair to be asked of. Um, and so the immediate initial responses uh, was from the AC2 and unions was the call for special leave, the coverage that to cover that, particularly for a two a two week period. Um, uh, I'll talk a bit about what I think about some of these demands. Subsequently, the government has, uh, the, the Morrison government has put forward a range of stimulus packets focused on giving cash to small and medium employers, although that's involved in the last couple of days. Um, 
which I thought I was going to have to completely rewrite this talk um, because I thought I was going to have an amazing, uh, I was really hopeful that I was going to have an amazing, amazing package, but it's pretty shit. And I'll go into some detail about what's wrong with the, the, the package that they put forward. Um, we've seen some expansion of welfare payments, um, and this is an important step, but again, I'll go into some of the problems about what's wrong with that in terms of the fact that it's not ex uh, extended enough. It's not, it's been backdated too far um, in terms of when it will kick in, um, and it's not permanent, which is what we need to do. We need to have the increases, like the increases that they're talking about in terms of the job seeker allowance and for students, really a reflection of the inadequacy of Australia's uh, welfare system. Um, and now, and we've subsequently had calls for wage subsidies by the tax system, both by unions and employer groups, which um, the government made announcements about yesterday, over the last couple of days. Um, and there's been a range of other uh, announcements and calls, which I'll touch on at the end, in terms of uh, what I think is pro uh, good and bad about those proposals. Um, so, um, my concern from the get-go has been that the real danger was not the imminent health threat, as terrifying as that is, and it's super terrifying, particularly when you look at what's happening in Italy and Spain at the moment, but also other parts of Europe, um, and what's going to happen in the US, because the US is going to be a nightmare. But the consequence of the significant shutdown of the economy on working people, um, uh, and I'm using the term working people to talk about both people in direct employment relationships and people whose relationship to production may be more accurately described as petty, as petty bourgeois. Um, the first challenge is that we need to urgently stop the spread of the virus, which means as much as possible closing down the bulk of the economy. Um, except for those parts of the economy we need functioning to keep people alive or to allow people to keep function, uh, the people, the essential workers to keep functioning. So healthcare, food production, power supply, manufacturing of, uh, of personal protection equipment and other medical goods, medical research, uh, distribution networks, childcare education for those still at work, uh, which should only be the essential workers. Um, public transport for people moving, uh, for moving people around to work. Um, and that is that everything else is pretty much not needed. If they can function at some level online, but um, that's fine. But if not, just close it down. That's my that's my personal view. Um, and that's that's been part of the struggle in Italy um, in the last week, where there's been a general strike by workers in a lot of manufacturing areas who have been required to attend work um, but with very limited protection around maintaining their health. Um, and there was a, uh, essentially stay home um, in the last week by um, tens of thousands of Italian workers. Um, the second challenge is, in my view, is ensuring that people are able to survive. This means uh, special leave, um, initially to cover isolation and quarantine, recovery from illness. Um, but, however, I think that the call for two weeks leave for all workers, which the ACT put forward, was good. It was also in insufficient um, and should have been, un and, and this call should have been around, at that point, around unlimited leave to meet people's commitments, um, uh, particularly as the economy slows down. Um, and whilst I think that initially this should have needs to be done through companies' cash reserves, even the largest companies will run out of money if they are not trading. Um, and so the demand for wage subsidies, which the ACTU um, started raising in the last week or so um, and was supported unevenly by business, um, is really important. Um, it's really important to guard against job losses and to try and maintain people's purchasing power as much as possible, along, um, as well as the increases in welfare payments, which I've already mentioned, um, which need to also be made permanent. However, companies, particularly large companies at risk of borrowing, should simply be nationalised. So, um, uh, 
and we should be looking at this as an opportunity to try and position the economy um, around the need for just energy transition post the current slowdown and, and the pandemic. Um, so over the past two days, the government has announced a wage subsidy scheme, uh, uh, and that was just days after they rejected the call. Um, the initial reports, particularly in the fin review, financial review, suggested that it was going to be similar to the schemes in Britain and Denmark, uh, where they guaranteed a percentage of workers' wages. So the British scheme, I think, was 80% of workers' uh, wages, and the Danish scheme was 75%. Um, However, the Morrison government scheme does not do that. Instead, it, uh, instead it sets some quite high uh, qualifying barriers for businesses. Um, so it means that you, uh, for companies that earn have a revenue of less than a billion dollars a year, they have to have lost 30% of their revenue. And for businesses that um, have a revenue of above a billion dollars a year, they have to have lost 50% of their revenue. Um, these pay, um, and there's a lot of those businesses. There's a lot of businesses who just won't qualify, um, but they're going to struggle, um, or they won't qualify for a while. For a while, they're going to struggle. Um, uh, and then, and the, the payments will only start on May one. They'll be back over to March one. But I'm not sure what people are supposed to do for two months without if they've been stood down without pay. Um, and the payments will be at 70% of the median wage, which is about $1,500 for all workers. And that's irrespective of their normal hours, what their normal wages are. Um, and the money will go directly to companies. Um, it's unclear how the payment will work. Um, the Centre for Future Work suggests that workers will receive a, ma a max at maximum their normal wages, which means that some companies will be in a position to pocket the additional payment. Um, it's also need to be acknowledged that for casual staff to qualify, they have to have been working for uh, more than 12 months um, for the employer, and it's unclear how that's defined. Um, it's unclear how breaks of service will work. Um, for those that don't know what a break of service means, it means there's been a gap in the employment, um, which is very common for casual workers. Um, and, uh, um, and so without that being clear, it's very hard to know exactly how some of this stuff will work and where all, uh, everyone who's looking at it is trying to work, uh, try and get their heads around it. And that's been the problem with a lot of the government announcements is that they're very light on detail. Um, and there's a lot of grey to be filled in. And as you fill in the grey, you find out that what looked like a pretty shit deal is even shitter. Um, so I need to say that while the announcement is positive and significant step, like the early announcements by the government, it's del um, it is delayed, it's being delayed too much and it's insufficient. Payment needs to be brought forward and equally important, it should be capture a greater share of workers' actual wages. Um, and this fight will need to occur both at the level of lobbying government also, but also in ensuring that all the subsidy money that is given to businesses flows through to working people and is not used to bolster um, the, the company's cash reserves. Um, and whilst it may seem unrealistic to demand more, the rate at which the government is announcing new stimulus packages, generally after the previous packages proved itself inadequate in just days, shows both the pressure the government and the ruling class are under and the extent to which they don't have answers to the problem facing the planet. It suggests we could rapidly enter a serious uh, period of legitimation crisis. Um, I'm not going to explain what that means. We can talk about it in discussion. Uh, it essentially means that the, the loss of people's um, confidence in the in the ruling class to rule and their own loss of confidence in their ability to rule, um, which means that it's vital that we have a vision of what could be done to meet the challenges facing working, working people and to be raising those demands and be trying to spread those demands. So having said that, I just want to talk about two, um, two things that have emerged in the last few weeks. The first is the idea from the government around the idea that workers should draw down their super as a way in which to um, meet gaps in their... Um, in their income. Uh, 
And we have to say that that proposal is a, ref- uh, a recognition by the government that their response is entirely inadequate. Um, and it's aimed at shifting across the cost of the crisis directly onto working people, forcing them to mortgage their futures to, to survive in the here and now. Um, and that many of the most insecure workers won't have the money to draw down on. So the, for those that don't know, the proposal is that you'd be able to draw down $10,000 um, in uh, uh, this financial year and $10,000 next financial year. Uh, lots of workers under 30 don't have that much money in their super accounts. Um, and even in the late 40s, the average super account is about $60,000. So we're talking about a very large proportion of people's retirement savings that they would just be, um, they would never be able to recoup. So there's a real danger of, of that proposal destroying uh, all or substantial parts of the retirement savings of working people um, and creating a, a space for speculators to profit even more as funds are forced to sell off assets in order to pay demands from members for cash. Um, Needs to be remembered that industry subvention funds are major investors in many public-private partnerships, uh, which is a problem of itself. Public-private partnerships are a really terrible way for um, governments to pay for uh, infrastructure, like super bad ways. But it may, that, that process will mean that um, companies that the uh, that the the super funds will be forced to sell off assets, and it may work as a mechanism to further and intensify um, the much more effective privatisation of those projects. Um, and when I was discussing, discussing this talk with a, a, a comrade, they said, I think that the thing that many on the left miss about superannuation is that it is, a pro- it is property in trust. And so basically it's inviolable from, the cap- from a capitalist perspective. It's not a pension that can be rated by government or company. Um, but the drawdown and sub- subsequent potential for the liquidity crisis would change that situation significantly because they would be able to raid those assets which are held in trust for working people's future. Um, so we need to reject the idea of drawdowns and super, but it's not a question about what individuals should do. Like if a person's desperate to survive, they are going to um, draw on their super and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, because if you're struggling to survive and you can draw on your super, what else are you going to do? Um, so we have to centre the demand for income, on income maintenance as well as the permanent increase in the age pension um, to a, a level of a livable wage um, coming out of this um, out of this crisis. Um, the final thing I want to touch on, which has um, sort of shifted a little bit in the last few days, which I have talked about on my blog, um, but and there probably may be an article coming out in Green Left um, uh, in coming issues, is around the call for rent strikes. Um, there has been a growing call for people to not pay their rent. Um, for many people, as they lose their jobs or are still down, there will be a real question regarding their ability to pay rent. Uh, and, and they're going to face uh, a Sophie's choice of between paying rent or eating. And they may not even have that choice. They may not be able to do it either. Um, and in this context, the call to not pay rent or suspend rent mortgage patients makes total sense. Obviously, the government's announced that they're um, doing a moratorium on evictions for six months and they're um, and there's been agreements from the banks around mortgages. However, the problem is that we, if there's a generalised effort to not pay rent by people who can pay rent, we risk a deepening of the crisis. Um, and so my view is that if people can afford to pay their rent, they should, or they should pay a bit of it. Um, uh, my, from, from my point of view, the primary problem that we face at the moment is around protecting people's incomes of the incomes of working people and so if we are able to do that 
all the other things that people are raising um, become secondary issues. Like if you've got your income flowing through and it's guaranteed, you can pay your rent. Um, if you've got, if you don't need to go to work and you're getting paid, you don't need to worry about childcare because you don't need to go to work and you can stay home and you can look after your, your, your children. And then teachers don't need to be at school um, and childcare workers don't need to be at, at childcare um, uh, establishments, except for um, providing teaching and childcare for the workers that are in, in essential industries. Um, I think that the events of the last month, the rapid shift in the position of the college in government, along with the announcements of wage subsidies globally, shows the ruling class is unsure how to respond and are extremely susceptible to pressure. And we need to be taking this opportunity to raise demands that not only address the immediate challenges facing us, but which challenge the right of capital to dominate our society. Um, this is an unprecedented challenge for society, but it is also an incredible opportunity to build a social, to build social solidarity, community power, and fundamentally challenge the logic of not only neoliberalism, but capitalism itself. There will be a need to restart many industrial industries post the pandemic, and that offers a serious opportunity for discussion as to what that reopening and retooling should look like. Um, the crisis has highlighted a broad range of issues that, um, uh, around which there's a real need for um, to, to have a discussion around, such as the expansion of public health systems and for public housing. Both of these would be serious opportunities for both jobs and the transformation of our economy, um, um, from something that is a source of private wealth to a social good. Um, certainly, there's a real opportunity for construction of renewable energy as a mechanism for re rebuilding the manufacturing sector in public hands. In all of this, we should be arguing for the right of working people to have a say, both in their, our communities, but also in our places of work and the vital role um, and this has been highlighted by the right role that working people are playing in keeping the world functioning at the moment um, through this crisis and the total inadequacy of the market to respond effectively. Um, okay, I've just got my 15 minute um, signal, so I've got one paragraph what to say. So to do this, we need to be creative, we need to be bold, and we need to build alliances based on the dynamics of the movement today, not historical divisions. Another world is possible, so let's build, uh, uh, let's work to it together to build it. Be realistic, demand the impossible. Thanks a lot. Thanks heaps, Lisbeth. Um, I hope you didn't have to rush through the last bit too too much. Um, our second speaker, now people will, who joined while Lisbeth was speaking will be able to ask questions after we've had all of our speakers. So um, don't worry, so write down your um, questions and um, uh, you know, keep it, just keep a note of them. Um, you'll be able to ask them later. Um, so our second speaker is Mary Merkinich, um, who is an education union activist and, um, uh, she has been campaigning in Melbourne for the schools to be closed. Um, so I'll hand it over to, uh, Mary, who's on the State uh, Council of the Australian Education Union in Victoria. Uh, Mary, thanks. Thank you, Sue, and um, hello to everyone. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people on whose land we work, live and organise. We know their sovereignty was never ceded and we should assist them in their struggles in any way we can, for example, by donating to Aboriginal or Indigenous groups, for example, SEED, which is an Indigenous Youth Climate Network. It wasn't so long ago, in fact, early January this year, that I was marching alongside an estimated 20,000 Victorians 
demanding serious action on the climate crisis. We were all angry and upset because Australia had just witnessed the devastation of the biggest and most terrible bushfires. And we know that it was caused by climate change and government inaction. This was an example of capitalism putting profits ahead of our planet. What we are witnessing at present is another example of capitalism's failure to address people's needs because it's placing profits ahead of our well-being, our health, even our lives. COVID-19 has highlighted the results of an underfunded public health system. Our health system often struggles to meet normal demands for healthcare, but now it is struggling to cope with a relatively new and unknown pandemic. For example, Horsham, many of you will know Horsham, a regional city in Western Victoria and a very popular, uh, popular tourist destination. It currently has a six week waiting period to see a doctor. It is running out of testing equipment fast and consequently there is talk of closing down the town. Federal and state governments have pledged to roll out more intensive care beds and community clinics. They have also promised to supply protective equipment for those still working, including teachers like myself. But so far, much of this has been slow to materialise. The, uh, the federal government and many state governments have refused to close schools, childcare centres or TAPEs. The workers in these industries have been treated as if they are of little significance to our leaders and therefore expendable. We have not been asked what we think or how we want this threat in our workplaces to be dealt with. Sadly, our unions have been missing in action and so workers are very angry and upset. It is clear to all that the economics are more important than people's lives. It is also clear that the neoliberal attacks on public services, on wages, working conditions and welfare have compounded the challenge of overcoming the coronavirus. Further, the COVID-19 crisis has also shown us that it is those workers whose jobs are most undervalued by the system that we most rely upon. Workers in healthcare, retail, childcare, education and cleaning, among others. They are the ones that are keeping us going, even under lockdown. These workforces also tend to be largely comprised of women and migrants, powerless workers or uh, with less powers. The International Labour Organization predicts that, uh, that 25 million people worldwide will lose their jobs as a result of the virus. Although this is considered a considerable underestimation. Up to a billion children worldwide have been affected by school closures. Hundreds of millions of migrants and refugees have no access to health infrastructure. Prisoners in overcrowded jails the world over, the homeless and those in war zones are sitting ducks for this virus. So, we need to be really serious about this. As Dr. Norman Swan, the ABC's health reporter and doctor has said, we should view this as a war, 
and prepare accordingly. It requires swift and unprecedented action. Based on current projections, globally COVID-19 is likely to cause the deaths of many millions of people. The final death toll will be largely determined by the effectiveness and timeliness of the responses made by governments working closely with health professionals. We need as societies to rally all of society's resources and make decisions to, that protect all of us, especially the most vulnerable and powerless. For example, we should immediately begin a campaign of free mass testing for the virus and systematic contact tracing. We should boost funding for the public health system and nationalise public hospitals. We should shut down all schools, childcare centres and TAPEs and provide free childcare for those who require it. Some schools will have to stay open with skeleton teams who have volunteered and are adequately protected. No worker in any industry should be compelled to stay in a workplace. In fact, we need a complete lockdown of all non-essential industries. Essential industries being health and emergency services, power, food and transport for these particular industries until a vaccination is available. We also need guaranteed paid sick leave and a minimum income for all workers to facilitate self-isolation. The key to being able to self-isolate is to have the economic means to do so when you're not getting paid work. Therefore, we also need a moratorium on rent and mortgage payments and access to welfare, Medicare, free public health and public services to everyone living in Australia. So that means we have to include asylum seekers, migrant workers on temporary visas, international students, New Zealand citizens and tourists. And in addition, factories like Ford need to be retooled to make necessary medical supplies. The public sector should organise the distribution of food and necessities by paid, and this is really important, protected workers. Any business found to be price gouging should be subject to immediate nationalisation. Detention and remand centres should be closed and prisons either uh, be made safe or also closed. And that's what we as socialists would do and also what we demand. Governments around the world have been centralising the response to the pandemic and they have been declaring national emergencies. Such centralised coordination may now be urgent to confront this health crisis that we all face. But centralisation of emergency powers in capitalist states is something we all need to be very wary of. The powers they are giving themselves may well be used after the virus has been brought under control to suppress discontent, heighten surveillance, and maybe impose repressive social control, um, to push forward the global police state. 
Military and police forces are being used in countries around the world. In the United States, the, the National Guard has been deployed in at least 27 states, and the US Department of Justice secretly asked Congress to suspend constitutional rights. The far right will also use this crisis to further their aims, uh, to stoke racism, divisions between workers, and support for authoritarian measures. So we, left and progressives, we need to build a broad alliance to stop anything like this being successful. Consciousness, on the other hand, to be really positive, consciousness seems to be growing uh, worldwide on the need for grassroots solidarity and mutual aid in the face of this pandemic. There are many inspiring examples of such solidarity and also progressive work. Uh, I'll name a few. People in Canada started a huge uh, petition to stop Justin Trudeau from handing over billions to big oil. They called instead for direct relief to workers, investments in social services, and an ambitious plan for a just transition to green jobs to help people recover from the COVID-19 crisis. And people also participated in a virtual art build to show solidarity with Indigenous climate defenders in, in Canada. Activists in, in the Philippines are meeting to work out their demands for a strong Green New Deal. On the Pacific island of Tokelo over the weekend, prepared food rations to assist people so that they could stay home um, took place. Uh, it's part of the local Inatu system, a form of sharing in a time of need. And all over, mutual aid community groups are springing up at lightning speed online to help with childcare, delivering medicines and, fin and financial support. For instance, a new COVID support network pla platform matches people seeking help with those nearby who are offering help. Left and progressive forces have to demonstrate alternatives to the inaction of the capitalist politicians and also to the far right, so that we can deal with this crisis on our terms and in our interests. And we have to be ready to deal with any coming upheavals so that the working class is empowered and can further our own interests. I would say that this is the construction of a society with values based on human needs rather than profit and the needs of the environment and all the species that inhabit our planet. I'm going to stop there, but I'm happy to discuss any questions that people have. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Mary. Um, you went under time. You still had a few more minutes up your sleeve. Um, so now we'll move on to the other side of the world, and I'd like to welcome Dick Nichols, um, who's living in... Um, the heart of Spain in Barcelona and of course we've all seen the incredible scenes on our TV screens about the level of crisis in Spain um, so I'd really like to welcome Dick to um, speak and describe what things have been like um, in Spain. Um, thanks Dick, over to you. Thanks very much Sue and thanks for the opportunity to participate um, and give some some of these stories of happening what's happening over here um can you hear me 
Yes, yeah. I can hear you. Right. Um, but before I go to Spain, I just want to quote from a letter from doctors in Bergamo in northern Italy, um, a letter they sent to the Massachusetts Medical Society, which just gives us an idea of what uh, how bad the situation can become. Um, these doctors write, our own hospital is highly contaminated and we are far beyond the tipping point. 300 beds out of 900 are occupied by COVID-19 patients. Fully 70% of ICU beds in our hospital are reserved for critically ill COVID-19 patients with a reasonable chance to survive. The situation here is dismal as critically ill COVID-19 patients um, force us to operate well below our normal standard of care. Waiting times for an intensive care bed are hours long. Older patients are not being resuscitated and die alone without appropriate, appropriate palliative care, while the family is notified over the phone, often by well-intentioned, exhausted and emotionally depleted staff with no prior contact with them. But the situation in the surrounding area is even worse. Most hospitals are overcrowded, nearing collapse with medications, medical ventilators, oxygen and personal protective equipment are not available. Patients lie on floor mattresses, the healthcare system struggles to deliver regular services, even pregnancy care and child delivery, while cemeteries are overwhelmed, which will create another public health problem. In hospitals, Healthcare workers and ancillary staff are alone trying to keep the system operational. Outside the hospitals, communities are neglected, vaccination programs are on standby, and the situation in prisons is becoming explosive with no social distancing. We have been in quarantine since March 10. Unfortunately, the outside world seems unaware that in Bergamo, this outbreak is out of control. Well, I just wanted to read that because it gives a sort of benchmark of how bad the situation can, can become. Here in Spain or <coughs> in the Spanish state, <coughs> excuse me, we're not, we've not reached this point yet. Um, but if radical and absolutely draconian measures aren't taken, then we could easily arrive at that point. At the moment, in the 17 Spanish, uh, what are called states in Australia, what would be states in Australia, called autonomous communities here, um, eight out of 17 have uh, exhausted their ICU units. So there's a dreadful, intense war to get uh, new ICU units set up in sort of field hospitals. Um, and Madrid and the Catalonia are the worst hit in this situation. There's a generalised shortage of equipment, uh, especially of respirators, and the le level of stress on professionals, especially I would say the younger generation who've never gone through anything remotely like this, um, were, it, it is extremely hard and extremely high, and the infection rate amongst professionals is, is very high. For example, there's over a 1,000 uh, doctors, nurses and other uh, health workers who are infected in Catalonia alone. <coughs> but this still, this 
situation can we can still stop this or the with appropriate measures we can still stop this becoming as bad as the situation in Italy um, I want to describe just how health workers are tackling the crisis here and just stress some of the points that um, Mary and Elizabeth, Elizabeth already made which is this thing is going to be defeated by the coordinated effort and sacrifice uh, of ordinary people of ordinary workers um, by which I mean, you know, from the health professionals uh, down to down to people who were never noticed in normal life, like the people who are cleaning the streets. Um, in the Spanish state, we unfortunately the problem has been exacerbated by the decision of the Spanish government about how to handle the crisis. This goes to the centralisation decision uh, that's already been me- mentioned. What they decided was that instead of letting the existing health system, which overwhelmingly operates through the autonomous communities, through the states in, in Australian terms, instead of letting them continue and the central government acting as a coordinating and facilitating body, they decided to centralise everything and take all the major decisions at the, at the central uh, Spanish level. What this meant is that the federal equivalent would be equivalent to the federal department of health uh, here is making decisions or is having to make decisions on things like uh, procurement for which it has doesn't have the competence or the people um, so you have over centralized sort of a bureaucratic chaos at the center and that inevitably has led to uh, it's a situation where hospitals health regions just try and uh, survive as they can. So you get centralised bureaucracy and then uh, at the local level, people just trying to uh, set up field hospitals, get equipment, get masks, uh, get respirators uh, and make the system survive however, however they can they can do that. Um, we have a very strange uh, situation here in in Catalonia because you've got the national question which I'll talk about in a minute and of course politics doesn't stop just because you've got a life and death um, situation. The Here in, in Barcelona there's a push and it's successful. I've expanded the number of ICU units from three times in the space of 10 days here um, but this is it's it's a push to just set up field hospitals in you know sports centres, gymnasiums, and places like that. Um, and where does the equipment come from? Well, you get to a situation where local mayors are ringing up um, bed manufacturers or going down to IKEA, which is closed, and saying, "How many beds have you got here? I'll you know I want to buy two hundred beds." We have the uh, very bad situation where respirators. There's a big shortage of respirators here. Uh, the response, however, has been that local industry, and this is even you know, big industry, which is closed down, has said, we'll, we'll churn out respirators for you. So, you know, one of these holy, uh, holies of holies of uh, capitalist production, which is patent law, uh, goes out the window. Um, and I just want to say a few things about, you know, what openings this gives uh, to, to, to socialist policy later on in, in this presentation. But patent law is the first thing because what's happened is, of course, that uh, we just grab 
whatever piece of equipment we can out of which we can uh, make a respirator and th this this gets done. Um, in Barcelona, there's a, co a consortium which is already churning out 300 of these improvised respirators a week. Um, they've been certified as, as, as functional and, and working and not going to place anybody's lives in risk uh, inadvertently uh, by the Spanish uh, Ministry of Health. And similar things are happening uh, in, uh, in other parts of the Spanish state. <coughs> now, my third area, which I'm, I want to talk about, and, and I just want to mention, this is in much more detail in the interview I did in links with uh, Fred Fuentes. Uh, but the third area I want to talk about is the policies needed to, de to defeat this, this virus. In the Spanish state, we've already gone through what you're going through in Australia, which is the great debate about, well, how, how total does the shutdown have to be? Um, and effectively what happened, if we will get into the Italian scenario uh, that I described at the beginning, um, if we get into that scenario, it will be because we're two weeks behind the curve here. And the reason we're two weeks behind the curve, because the central government was under a great pressure uh, from, from industry uh, not to close down everything. Um, and of course, here we come into you know, politics in the Spanish state. From the beginning, the Catalan government, uh, which is supposedly to be a, a right-wing nationalist government, uh, was telling the progressive government in Madrid, which is the uh, Socialist Workers' Party plus United uh, Unidas Podemos uh, government, that they had to implement a complete shutdown uh, and that they would be given... You know, the, their medical experts were telling them, their consultative committees of epidemiologists were telling them, the sooner you have a complete shutdown of everything but uh, emergency services uh, and absolutely essential uh, production, the sooner you do that, the more lives you will save. And, and that was an argument. And of course, because this is being proposed by the Catalan government, it therefore became unacceptable. Ipso facto, oh, well, they're proposing it, therefore we can't do it. Um, and when the Balearic Islands government, which is a Pessoa government, uh, proposed essentially the same thing, um, and Ireland, the Balearic Islands have been effectively sealed off from the rest of the Spanish state, um, that was accepted. And we're already seeing that that has been a successful, uh, more successful in the Balearic Islands, the rate of contamination and the rate of spread um, of the of the virus is discernibly less uh, in the Balearic Islands than it is here, and certainly in in Madrid, where it is closest to being in the sort of Italian uh, situation. One of the issues that uh, is needed to defeat the virus and is is massive testing, which goes beyond the bounds of the existing health system. Uh, that is to say. In today, the, a study by the Imperial College in London brought out a study, their update on the COVID virus, which said that uh, up to 15 times as many people in probably in Spain and in other European countries were actually infected by the virus, probably. We could project that, um, but we don't know because there's not been uh, massive testing. One of the reasons that... Singapore, Vietnam, uh, Taiwan, other Asian countries uh, have 
had a better policy and had much more success in containing the viruses. Of course, that they've they learned from the SARS and MERS ep- epidemics, and on the basis of that pretty horrifying experience, they introduced um, community testing on a broad basis. Any sign of, the, of, of a symptom, people have to take a test. Isolation takes place straight away. Um, and this way you can keep the so-called, you know, the, the curve uh, flat, flatter. Um, but when you have a community, a, a public health system, which is based on patient care, but not on public health um, uh, as in community-based public health, uh, then of course it's it's very imp- it's hard and now it's got to be done to improvise a you know community community based public health system, and the harder and the more privatised your health system is of course, and we'll see this in the United States, the even harder it is to do that because uh, you, you're infringing on the right not to have public health. You're, hing- you're infringing uh, on the right not to have big government interfering interfering in your lives. So that's a point that is stressed by these uh, the doctors in Bergamo, whose who's, this article is worth reading. I sent it to Australia. I don't know exactly who I sent it to. Can't remember that. But the article is worth reading because it's basically saying, um, in this face of this sort of crisis, you need they don't say they don't say this, but this is what they, they're referring to. Uh, you need Cuban-style public health. You know, we don't want to discuss, you know, the adequacies and inadequacies of the human health system. But one thing is certain, that it is a public health system based on um, prevention, uh, community health standards and strict control uh, against any sort of uh, epidemic. My fourth point is, uh, is on the effect of all of this on Spanish state politics. Um, as I said earlier, just because this is a question of life and death doesn't mean uh, that, that you know, the political fight stops. At the all Spanish level of the right wing, I said, oh, well, this is a national emergency. It's a war. It's all everybody together, solidarity between all political forces. But at the same time, of course, they... Uh, saying when this is all over, we'll be telling you, you know, what you did wrong. Um, the Spanish right is finds it a bit difficult to manoeuvre in this situation because the way this uh, centralisation has been done in Spain is in a very Spanish way, with the army being brought in, uh, with the police force being given a, a big role and with the whole thing being presented as... Spain will defeat the virus. So it's, you know, it's not human beings fighting the virus. It's Spain is, is, is fighting the virus, which, of course, then produces a, an allergic reaction in the nationalities in Catalonia and Euskadi in the Basque country and in Galicia to a, uh, uh, to a lesser extent. Um, but in the, for example, we have army units, decontamination army units uh, in, in, in Catalonia at the moment the immediate response at the beginning was these people were sent in um, without being asked for, um, but just to prove the point, you know, who's in charge now? We're in charge now. Uh, we're now overriding uh, and establishing our, our, our presence. Now, given the, the intensity of the crisis, of course, the Catalan government and local councils are now using uh, 
these uh, army units and requesting their support, uh, their decontamination units. But these, of course, this could have been done in a completely uncentralised way. Uh, not a completely uncentralised way, but it could have been done if the Pessoa government is serious about its rhetoric about Spain being a nation of nations uh, and we look to collaborate and the central government looks to be a facilitator and a coordinator, then they could have done this centralisation in a very uh, a different way. Um, the other thing I'd like to stress is what's already been mentioned by Mary is that the far right is mobilising to use this crisis. So this will be, and we've already got it yesterday in Hungary. What happened in the Hungarian parliament yesterday was that the, um, the ruling government, the ruling party um, passed a sort of enabling law, a Hitler style 1933 enabling law, which effectively suspends all rights, suspends the constitution, uh, suspends elections and, and gives the government the right to do what it, do what it likes. Um, and this was voted through. And we will see uh, a lot more of attempts to use this crisis by the far right. The other use of the crisis here is scapegoating. Uh, in, in Spain, of course, uh, you know, scapegoating from the right is just part of the daily, you know, it's just in the atmosphere. It's, you know, what you have for breakfast. What, what are those, who are they scapegoating today? But one theme they're running on is that uh, this, the big propagator of this virus was IWD, International Women's Day. It's because they let, you know, those feminists or feminazis out on the streets on International Women's Day. This was a, a, a big propagator of the, of the virus. So we can expect to hear a lot more about that um, when the crisis or if and when the crisis is finally overcome. Finally, I just wanted to make some points about uh, the political ramifications of the crisis, ramifications of the crisis and what openings it gives us for socialist solutions. Because as comrades have already said, it is a situation of dramatic crisis of uh, governance, ordinary capitalist governments, where they suddenly have to drop a whole lot of their holies of holies. Suddenly these holies of holies with which, you know, the working class and all the massive uh, ordinary people are instilled that things that have to be done Deficits have to be brought under control. I mean, I think in Australia that's been an absolute obsession. I can't be sure of that. Um, but suddenly, of course, deficit reduction targets have gone out the window. Um, the patent law, as I've already mentioned, has gone out the window. At the European level, the st growth and stability pact, which is like the 11th commandment here, which is the requirement of all member states of the European Union to meet the deficit reduction targets, that's been dropped. Uh, no sackings in, in here. In, there's a whole debate about, uh, well, there's, you have a law for, for laying people off unavoidably, and that's what's being applied. And that will give people, workers laid off will get, I think it's 75, don't quote me on this, 75% or 80% of their, of their usual wage. Um, but of course, the bosses are already and pleading force majeure, saying, "Well, we can't just lay people off; we've got to sack them." Uh, and the government came out. The UP uh, Minister for Labor said, "No, we're not going to have any sackings," and said there wouldn't be any sackings. Uh, and this was actually a bit of bullshit because what all it had 
she did was, all they did was, they in, they applied the law that if there's no agreement over sackings, uh, then that is to say if the unions are strong, essentially, that's what it means, if the unions have some presence in the workplace, uh, then the boss has to pay more, has to pay 33 days uh, wages uh, for every year of service uh, instead of 20 days wages for every year of service. But it is, it, this brings up the whole uh, question of what has to be done, and uh, Elizabeth has already talked about this, but there's some good examples. I think the best example is the Danish example to date, which is essentially the Danish government has said, we'll just put everything on freeze, don't worry, stay at home, and we will pick up the tab. Uh, we won't pick up the whole tab, it'll be 75% or 80% of the wage, I don't know the, the full details. Um, but essentially this means, and the Catalan government has taken this up here as the next move that has to be adopted in Spain, which is if you have a guaranteed minimum income, then this is a simple thing that can be understood. It helps the self-employed, it helps small business, um, and then that way people's anguish about what's going to happen to them, and especially people in the less organised areas, you know, the self-employed, uh, small traders, and that's a very big uh, sector here in Spain, you know, three million, four million people, then that anguish is, is, st is stopped. Uh, and so even the Spanish former treasurer, who's now a deputy governor of the European Central Bank, uh, a person called the Guindos, um, has said we should introduce a guaranteed minimum income for everybody for the duration of the crisis. Well, why just for the duration of the crisis? That should be, you know, this is another example of a measure that could, they could be forced to take because as, as has been pointed out already, uh, the measures they take are the least they think they need to take. And then of course they have to do and go and do something else more. Um, but this is an example of the sort of measure that should be, should be campaigned for. Um, what is the likely size of the crisis? Well, there's a lot of statistics going around, but the bank rescue package in Spain from the financial cost uh, crisis was, this is the government forked out for the finance sector, 60 billion um, euros. And that will be small compared to the sort of figure that's needed here um, after this crisis. As I say, figures are thrown around of a, you know, between a 5% and a 15% drop in, in, in production and gross domestic product. This crisis will also uh, and, and, uh, exacerbate north versus south tensions within the European Union. They were very strong at the time of the financial crisis and about we were not going to bail out those Greeks. Those Greeks are going to pay. Um, uh, and that is going to be small scale. Already the Dutch finance minister has come out. I don't know why it is always Dutch finance ministers who are the nastiest people in Europe. But anyway, the Dutch finance minister has come out and said, uh, we, Spain and Italy didn't use the boom to uh, cut back on their debt and their deficit, on their deficit. And now they want us to uh, bail them out again. You know, well, that has produced a very violent reaction, even including, uh, you know, France, I must say. Macron has come out against this, uh, this, this stance, as has Portugal. But it, it just shows you the intense pressures that are going, they're going to be operating in the European Union. 
the European Union got out of the previous financial crisis, basically through the European Central Bank, just churning out money uh, in very creative ways. Uh, but now we've got zero interest rates or negative interest rates. So monetary policy and churning out money is not going to be enough. There's going to have to be a big, in, a big increase in, in public investment, which opens up the whole question of public investment for what? Uh, for a green transition is obviously what we would say, a serious green transition, not, not just the sort of uh, uh, fake transition that they're talking about here. Uh, one interesting thing that can come up in this situation, I think is a, a point that uh, we can make as socialists, is people will say, but this is going to be a huge increase in the debt burden. Future generations are going to be lumbered with this. And one thing that was said during the Second World War is if you wondered, if you worried about the size of the deficit that's incurred by financing the war, um, then let's impose a special tax on the wealthy. That is to say, put a special wealth surcharge on savings over, say, you know, in the Australian case, half a million uh, dollars. If that's if you're worried about the deficit, you can even make it a temporary wealth sur surcharge and say, well, we'll pay it off in the future when we when we can. But it just is a way of dramatising the fact that, you know, those who can afford to pay for this crisis should be the ones who can uh, kind of pay for it. And let me just finish on this point. I think if this obviously demonstrates, this crisis demonstrates and makes it possible for us to campaign, for socialists to campaign, um, and it will be very easy to campaign here, uh, for strengthening of public community-centred healthcare where this is already the basic framework of health delivery, which is the case in the Spanish state. And I must say, from an Australian point, being an Australian in, in, in Spain, the community health system here is like, uh, uh, you know, paradise. For, from our point of view, from the Australian point of view, compared to uh, compared to what you have in us, what we have in Australia, uh, even of course more so than in the United States. But of course, there's a lot of underfunding. There's creeping privatisation. There's the private sort of nibbling at the trying to take bits of it out of the public system. That will all end. Um, but the, the, this uh, crisis, of course, makes it possible for us to sketch out and use the need for community-based healthcare to say this is how health should be dis d delivered. Public health is actually a tautology. Public health, health is public. Um, and therefore, if you've got private providers, they've got to be totally under control of, uh, of the public system. And the perspective should be to gradually or at some speed or other, weed out private provision um, and make public health uh, totally public and funded um, from the tax system and based in the community. So I'll just leave it there and I'm happy to take, of course, any questions about what's going on. Feminism and class struggle. If you like our work, become a supporter of Greenleft Weekly from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support. You are listening to Greenleft Radio. You are just listening to a recording of an online forum, Capitalism Puts Profits Over Health, which was organised by Socialist Alliance and Greenleft. Now you'll be listening to an interview um, with Adam Bant, uh, the new federal leader of um, the Australian Greens, talking about the COVID-19 crisis, 
what needs to be done, and a question about the climate and politics. All right, beautiful. Okay, well, I think this is the first time we've spoken to you since you've become leader of the Greens. So firstly, just to congratulations on becoming leader. Thanks very um, much. As I'm sure you're aware, the COVID-19 issue has just had an overwhelming impact on social and political life at the moment, so I'd like to start there. Um, how would you characterise the government's handling of this um, COVID-19 response? Uh, they um, a bit too late and a bit too focused on putting business before people. The um, uh, government should have acted from a much earlier stage when the threat um, became apparent, but um, it's the the government's economic response that is also telling. Um, they were very quick to shovel billions of dollars out the door to assist um, large corporations to stay afloat, but there were no strings attached to it. And, and as a result, we saw uh, uh, images of, um, or depression-era images of doll queues snaking around the corner. That could have been potentially avoided if they'd listened to the Greens in Parliament and um, made the support to business conditional on jobs and wages guarantees. Um, it was a mistake to hand out billions without any strings attached. Uh, and um, it's no surprise that businesses started sacking people um, uh, on day one. Uh, the um, the package should have had um, uh, should have had a jobs and wages focus. The government is now um, playing catch up and is trying to unscramble the egg and has come um, has delivered some form of jobs and wages guarantees, the, which the um, uh, close to what the Greens have been pushing for. Um, worryingly, that doesn't cover people who are um, uh, casuals who are employed for less than 12 months, which is close to a million people in this country, they're going to be the ones most at threat from um, uh, pr probably on the lowest incomes, um, ones in the most difficult situation uh, when it comes to paying for the essentials. And uh, they um, will be trying to close that particular loophole. Um, the government's first response also left a number of people behind. It didn't extend the increased um, new start payment to students. We managed, the Greens managed to get that fixed by pressure, um, with pressure together working with the community, but there's, uh, we managed to get um, a, a ban on uh, evictions, uh, which is, um, which is very welcome. But people on disability support pensions still don't get the extra payment. Carers don't get the extra payment. We need to have, uh, I mean, everyone should be entitled to a, uh, a decent income and especially during a time of crisis um, so we're going to keep pushing for the government to extend its um, double new start payment um, to to everyone to make sure that there's no one left behind um, on the public health front the I think New Zealand uh, has taken a better approach than Australia I think the um, the government's reluctance to act quickly uh, stemmed in part from their desire to just continue business as usual and it took them a little while to realise the scale of the problem and that um, uh, the government's first instinct wasn't to put human life above business as usual and uh, as a result they're a bit slow um, uh, to, to, um, to get going on a public health response. 
Yes, okay. Um, what would you see then as the priority measures to be adopted uh, right, like right now? Um, it, firstly, ensuring no one is left behind, and that means uh, making sure every group in society has access to a guaranteed income through this crisis. Um, may, uh, not only banning evictions and foreclosures, but also making sure that rent and mortgage holidays are given um, where they're needed so that we don't find ourselves in six months uh, with people having huge debts and um, uh, being in significant stress at that point. Uh, the, um, we need a significant expansion of our public health care system. The, the, um, one of the things that's going to get us through this is a strong public health system, something that governments have attacked over um, many years and decades. That's going to be our significant front line of defence. We need to significantly expand our public health system and the equipment in it. Uh, I'm worried that we don't have enough ventilators and intensive care beds, for example, and we need to expand that. Um, and if, uh, uh, if we need to have a look at... Um, uh, expand, uh, saying the private sector um, now has to be subsumed in the healthcare sector, has to be subsumed to the public good, um, then that's something that we should look at too. Yep. Actually, I was going to ask about exactly that because, I mean, this crisis, I think, as in other crises in the past, has revealed the inadequacy of the private sector in dealing with crisis. Uh, I guess in particular, you notice the public hospitals sacking nursing staff. I mean, there's other examples from overseas of companies trying to impose pay patents and such like and, and not really looking after people in those, in those sort of contexts. Many people, I think, have drawn anti-capitalist conclusions from this experience, or even if not that far, at least are more open to ideas such as nationalising private hospitals or bringing Qantas back into public ownership. Do you have any comments about that? Yeah, the things that are going to get us through this crisis are all the things that neoliberals spent 30 or 40 years telling us were impossible. Um, putting uh, human need above a budget surplus, um, having a strong public health care system, having governments that act uh, on independent advice in the interests of the public good rather than in the vested interest. Uh, or it's, it, it is the um, public sector and um, a, a human-centred approach to economics that is going to get us through this crisis. The, um, um, so, and um, conversely, it's been the attacks, the, the government attacks on the um, public health care system, attacks on public housing um, that have left so many people vulnerable to this crisis. We have a homelessness and housing crisis in um, a very wealthy country and the government is advising everyone to stay at home, but what if you haven't got a home to stay in? And um, we've got hundreds of thousands of people on the public housing waiting lists across the country after governments of both persuasions spent years underfunding them. And now we're finding that it's exactly public services like that that are going to get us through. So um, the uh, what one of the things that the response to the crisis brings home is that it's actually... Um, uh, uh, public uh, services and public institutions acting in the public interest, not invested interests, that are the, uh, uh, where we turn to in a crisis. So um, uh, that has been... Um, uh, uh, it's not necessarily a lesson that the neoliberals uh, are wanting to draw from this crisis and... Um, we're all going to have to be prepared for um, when in a few months or a year's time 
they um, they start to complain that now the cupboard is bare and they've got to wind back the job seeker payments and they can no longer continue to support people who are doing it tough. We're going to have to be prepared for a fight um, to make sure that we don't go back to uh, 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 having a, uh, such an unequal society. Um, but the, um, if there's one thing that the response to this crisis has shown, it's the, um, the importance of the public um, ahead of the private. Um, on, the, on the question of um, uh, 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 government sort of bailing out of corporations, um, I think the government should look at taking ownership stakes in some of these big corporations that we're being asked to bail out. There's, um, I think, uh, the, if these, um, if the if the if the public is going to be exposed uh, to um, to the risk associated with these big corporations and is going to assist them to continue to operate through the crisis, then I think it is fair. Um, to ask for an ownership stake in return where appropriate. Um, and in many instances, uh, especially when we're dealing with essential services, I think a lot of people would think that's quite a sensible thing to do. Yes. Now, thanks. I wanted to turn to climate change. Um, obviously, before COVID-19 began to dominate public attention, uh, the bushfire crisis, which it feels like so long ago, but really you know, highlighted the absolute urgency of dealing with the climate crisis, uh, yet Labor and the LNP both remain committed to miserable or even non-existent climate policies. Um, at the risk of being asked of accusing a Dorothy Dixer, can you just comment on Labor's net zero by 2050 policy? Well, there's every chance that by 2050 it'll be too late. The science is pretty clear that it's what we do in the next decade that is going to count the most. And um, we need very, very strong cuts to pollution in uh, uh, before 2030, otherwise we may pass dangerous tipping points after which global warming becomes unstoppable. Um, and uh, the, and if um, all of the uh, if all that governments and oppositions can do is say, well, we'll take some action by 2050, then uh, then in the absence of strong 2030 targets, that's a death sentence. It's a death sentence, and. It, um, uh, so we are very disappointed that we, the government's um, uh, 2030 target is woefully inadequ inadequate and has us on track for between three and four degrees of global warming. And so the government's got to go, like the government is government of climate deniers and corporate shields, and they've got to go. But um, Labor, by dropping its 2030 target, has taken the pressure off Scott Morrison and um, is contributing to the idea that we can wait several decades when, in fact, it's an emergency. So so what targets and also what policies uh, to achieve those targets do the Greens support? Well, we need to get to uh, zero emissions uh, by 2040 at the absolute latest with the bulk of the work being done by 2030. The electricity sector should be 100% renewable by 2030 with a staged transition plan to... Um, uh, replace coal with renewable energy over the next 10 years, looking after effective workers and communities along the way. Um, the whole economy needs to be, uh, the whole society rather, needs to be looking at pollution cuts um, uh, between by 2030 closer uh, to 82% rather than um, what's the 26% that's being proposed by the government at the moment. Um, and our targets are for 64 to 82% by 2030.
and that's the kind of like we need as, as much as possible to be zero emissions um, in as many sectors as we can by 2030 with the remainder of the work being done by 2040. And uh, you have made support for a Green New Deal, a centrepiece policy for the Greens upon becoming leader. So I guess I want to ask what do you think a Green New Deal should look like and do you envisage the Green New Deal as an exclusively Greens policy or is it a project you would consider working with other people to develop and campaign for, in which case what would that collaboration look like? I think the, the vision of a Green New Deal is... Um, a government-led plan of investment and action, so that investment and action, to um, uh, uh, create new jobs and industries as we make Australia more equal. And so the, the, the twin underpinnings of it are a public-led program of investment to tackle the climate crisis and the inequality crisis and the jobs crisis that that Australia is facing, um, and the second pillar of it is universal services. So, um, making sure that we are all looked after and that no one is left behind. So, making education genuinely free, looking at free childcare, um, making understanding that you know that we're a wealthy country and that um, we uh, and that universal services are something that's that's um, core to what. Uh, uh, most people in this country um, uh, think is, is key to a good life. Uh, in terms of, uh, and my goals are to um, turf the government out, uh, get Greens into balance of power in both Houses of Parliament and then implement a Green New Deal. And so that will involve working with other parties and independents to make that happen. Um, in 2010, the Greens worked with Labor and independents to put in place a carbon price, get dental into Medicare for kids um, and bring about a number of other reforms. Uh, I think that, that um, we're not that far away from um, that outcome in Parliament again. It's a very tight Parliament still. Uh, and um, if we do our job right in the next election, we could see a change of government, um, but a shared power parliament. And so, yes, we will work with others to implement it. I've already had discussions with um, unions about what uh, fighting for a Green New Deal would look like, even had discussions with business as well, uh, sectors of business as well. And um, the, it's going to involve um, people working together across uh, across society to make it happen. Um, we will promote it, but look, you know, imitation's the sincerest form of flattery, and if other parties want to pick it up and make it their own, we'll be very happy about that too. And do you have any other comments on priorities for the Greens under your leadership? I think we've got a terrible government, and um, we want to hold the government, um, well, we want to turf the government out, and uh, they're a government of climate deniers who uh, are making inequality worse in Australia. So for me, I mean, my priorities are to get Australia, to tackle the climate emergency, to tackle the inequality emergency, and to tackle the jobs emergency, one, uh, job, jobs crisis rather. One of the um, things that I'll that I'll be talking a lot about uh, during the course of my leadership is um, the importance of of decent jobs with good conditions and lifting the minimum wage, lifting rates of pay in Australia at the moment, but also tackling job insecurity. Uh, it's especially the case amongst young people. We've got, I mean, before the coronavirus crisis hit, we have um, uh, nearly one in three young people in Australia either doesn't have enough 
work or doesn't have a job at all. Now, I think that's a national crisis. The, the casualisation and, in, and um, increasing insecurity uh, of work is, um, is has reached crisis point and it needs to be reined in. Like I said, say more broadly in terms of a focus for me, I think people in this country are feeling very anxious and part of the reason that people are feeling anxious isn't just the climate crisis and it's not just um, the threat of um, of coronavirus. It's because over the last three to four decades, governments have um, uh, made a lot of the basics of life um, very uncertain and no longer guaranteed. So you're no longer guaranteed a, um, a roof over your head. You're no longer guaranteed. Even if you um, find yourself lucky to get a job, you could still find yourself living in poverty. Um, part of government's role should be to guarantee the basics of life for people. And um, so I'll be fighting uh, a lot on the uh, on the jobs front, on the housing front, and on making sure that um, the basics of life are guaranteed and that they're treated as essential public services. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Good on you. Thank you. Okay. Have a good run. Thanks. Bye. Okay. See you then. Bye. So thanks, Adam Bant. That was Adam Bant on Green Left. Okay. See ya. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call one 800 634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.